to episode 99 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 28th of September 2020. I'm Joe, and with me are Phelan. Partying like it's 99. Graham. Hello. And Will. Good evening. So here we are. The nights are drawing in. It's cold and dark. But the good news is, I've got my tax bill and it's only $750. So (laughs) (laughs) you must have done well this year. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It did really well. Yeah. (laughs) Tremendously well. (laughs) Anyway. Let's start with a bit of news then. And uh, the first is some gaming news. A couple of stories here from you, Graham, that I have no idea about. The first one is Amnesia is now open source. This is the source code to a game called Amnesia Dark Descent, which was produced by Frictional Games. I think maybe it was published about eight years ago. Frictional have always supported Linux. It's one of the um, the games publishers we always kind of like to review um, back in the magazine days. and But more importantly, the games are really, really good. They have this their own kind of custom engine, I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head now, that lets you interact like physically with 3D objects in the 3D environment the games involve. Um, but they're kind of horror jump scare games that are actually very, very good if you've not played them before. So this open sourcing doesn't include the assets it's basically um, just the source code to the game. So it's going to be of interest to people who maybe want to understand how games work or create their own games are based on the same engine. You know that joke about Linux and games engines? Which one? The one that there's just a load of games engines, no games. <laughs> All right, yeah. But this is GPL v3, so people can't just take it and put it into proprietary games. If they're going to use the engine and stuff, they're going to have to make it open source, which is, I suppose, good. Yeah, that's true. But I think it's good from an educational perspective. I think it's good that the game's reached its end of life and rather than letting it sit on their servers or waiting for you know, uh, the retro scene to develop in 25 years, they've released a source code now. Yeah, and so BBC Micro Elite source code as well. This is slightly older then. Yeah, so this is, I don't think this this isn't GPL'd or anything. And in fact, I think it's kind of on some tentative permissions of Ian Bell and David Braben, the two original developers of Elite. So this game is one of the, the classics from 1984, initially released on the BBC uh, microcomputer and the Acorn Electron on the first day I learned today. Um, and any anybody of a certain age will have spent wasted far too many hours playing this in their youth it's an amazing space trading open-ended kind of a simulator it felt like a simulator at the time an incredible game um, i should really credit the person who's done all this work mark moxon has disassembled the 6502 code for the game because um, it was all written in assembler to squeeze everything out of the hardware and as a writer um, mark has commented on every single block of code reverse engineered exactly what it's doing which is quite tricky with six with assembler and then created this wonderfully descriptive text to describe exactly how the game is working the kind of variables involved you know look at the trading code for example to see how it works out the tonnage of the craft that you're flying versus what you're trying to buy where you're trying to buy gems and it all kind of for this game which is now really an artifact of gaming um it's it's a, just a really brilliant historical piece of work. It's great. It's a very cool site, though. I mean, it's awesome to, to step through that stuff and just the sheer complexity of a program like that and then the most awful, awful development environment that you could possibly imagine. I mean, there are some kind of retro gaming environments, but it really makes you appreciate that working within those restrictions basically create some of the best kind of games with such finely tuned playability. 
And maybe I just sound like an old person saying that. <laughs> it's not Oculus whatever you've got, though, is it? <laughs> well, Elite Dangerous is one of the best games you can play in VR. Um, it, it really is. It's like if you were a child growing up with Elite um, and then you put on this kind of VR headset and you dive into the um, Elite Dangerous universe, it's just mind-blowing. Is it like stepping into Tron? It's better than stepping. Have you seen Tron recently? God. <laughs> Although there's no anti-aliasing in Tron, I must admit they got the vectors right, but it's 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 mind-blowing compared to the graphics in Tron. Music's not as good. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, a bit of uh, Mozilla hate then, shall we? There was a post by Cal Peterson that has been going around over the last couple of weeks and it's called Firefox usage is down 85% despite Mozilla's top exec pay going up by 400%. And there's a graph there with uh, the two plotted quite tactically in an X shape where it just shows the usage of Firefox is going do, 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 down and the pay of Mitchell Baker going up and up and up to $2.5 million. And it's a very scathing piece about... Mozilla and wasting of money essentially and far too much bureaucracy and not enough actually doing what they should be doing and I feel it kind of echoes a lot of what a lot of people have been saying and it also makes me wonder what the hell is Mr. Baker still there it is a good question and Cal asks the question of like what is that pay rise linked to like what performance metric is it it's clearly not the market share of Firefox which according to the stat counter data that he uses has gone from around about 30-ish percent back in 2009 to under 5% in 2019. That's the market share. And, you know, at 30%, that's reasonable and you can have a, a good influence, but at under 5%, and that's on desktop, never mind the piss-poor performance on mobile, Firefox is irrelevant now, isn't it? I mean, surely that's what that graph says to you. It's irrelevant, and yet somehow Mozilla have been making all this Google money and spending it on what exactly? Oh, well, that page that you linked to of all the shocking fucking projects that have been killed by Mozilla, and I don't even know half of these. Yeah, killed by Mozilla. It's kind of uh, inspired by killed by Google. It's not quite as uh, graphically rich, shall we say, and they didn't specify a background color, so <laughs> marks down from me. Um but, uh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff on there that I just haven't heard of hardly any of it, really. And, yeah, all that stuff has had money spent on it. Is it fair to say that we are just watching the demise of Mozilla now, the slow demise? I really hope not. I think, I mean, the last time this came up, I, I, I swore and was quite angry, and I am still equally angry. And I think it's, it's kind of the proof that the browser itself is not a priority. Um, and that's the thing that we should be angry about. And I think it just needs better leadership, or at least Firefox does. If Mozilla thinks it, you know, it doesn't need the browser, let the fr browser free. Um, but yeah, I think it's a, an, a damning indictment of their lack of priority for the browser. And I don't even think it's that much of a slow demise. I think it's, it's pretty rapid now. I, I don't think that that last 5% can stick around. I think that even the diehards, which probably make up 1% of uh, of all the browsers, well, less than that, actually, are going to lose faith very soon. And we've been saying it on this show for a while now, as Graham just said, why are they not focusing on the browser? Why are they trying all these other things? And yeah, I agree. I, th I think that this is, um, that experiment writ large, and it, it's failed, and they need to get back on to focusing on their core strengths. 
if the browser is indeed a core strength anymore. Because we're going to get to a stage, aren't we, where there are so few people using Firefox that loads and loads of websites are just going to not work. And we'll just get back to that situation, whereas, you know, best viewed in, i.e., whatever, five or six. And you just won't really be able to access a lot of stuff. I find that increasingly, actually, that there's websites that just don't work properly. And, and I can put up with it most of the time, but then there'll be even like government websites and stuff where it just doesn't render properly or you can't input the data or something and it just gets frustrating. And you know, fire it up in Chrome, it's going to work perfectly because that's what the devs tested it in. I think generally speaking, the web community has learned from the bad old days of IE6 and do put more effort into testing cross-browser. But you're absolutely right. There are going to be more and more bugs slipping through the net because they haven't actually tested it on Firefox. That A robot has tested it on Firefox because none of the devs are running it as their daily driver. Failing, what's it going to take for you to switch away? I mean, I have, I haven't experienced any websites that don't work with Firefox yet. Um, I guess that's because of the websites I go to. I mean... I'm in a lot of cases prepared to not go to a website if they, you know, aren't going to work. Like I haven't used Google Maps in a long time because it, there was definitely something that didn't work with Firefox. So I just stopped using it. I used OpenStreetMap. Um, it's fixed now, but I'm a very, very small minority. I imagine that is prepared to walk if they're not prepared to support me. And I think they should support a standard. And, you know, if people are using WebKit, you know, pre-picked sort of before the standard has been set ones, then they kind of, I guess, excluded by it. But I mean, it's not a standard yet. So why are you using it? But I mean, that's just the way things happen, I guess, these days. I really don't know because I don't know where I could go. That's the other problem. Like, I'm not going to use Edge. I don't care if it's on Linux. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just not going to use it. It's not going to happen. And I'm not going to use Chrome. And by that extension, Chromium, because... When it's built, it has to be built with all their tools. It might as well be the same thing almost. Um, so I really don't know where I'm going. What do you think is going to happen with Edge? Is it is anybody going to use it on Windows, let alone... I mean, no one's going to use it on Linux, I don't think. But will will they just struggle? Is that fight over now and people will just stick with Chrome? No, I don't think so at all. I think Microsoft are positioning it as a Blink-based alternative to Chrome. You don't want to trust those Google people with all their privacy-invading bullshit. Use this serious business Edge browser, which ticks all the right boxes on the compliance form. Use that along with Office 365 and the antivirus and all the rest of it. And it doesn't matter what platform you're on, it'll be available for it. I think that's the plan. And I think that there will be enterprise users using it. I don't think many hobbyists or whatever will touch it with a barge pole, but... The people who uh, are sort of forced by IT departments to run antivirus and stuff on Linux, which does happen, believe me, I think they're the kind of people who are going to end up being forced to use it. That's the real problem here is that rather than the web being a, a set of standards, it then becomes Blink. And Blink is controlled by Microsoft and by Apple and by Google. We will find it very difficult to have any say in it, despite the fact it's, you know, originated with Lars Knoll and KHTML. <laughs> That's what's so sad about this. I feel somewhat responsible for my own demise. <laughs> <laughs> okay, 
This episode is sponsored by Datadog, the monitoring and analytics platform for comprehensive visibility into your Linux environment. By uniting metrics and events from servers, databases, applications, and more, Datadog can easily give you a unified view into your entire infrastructure. Easily identify hidden sources of latency, like overloaded hosts, by monitoring server metrics alongside application data. With machine learning-based alerts and features like anomaly detection, Datadog can also help you to monitor and alert on the health of your servers in real-time without alert fatigue. Start your Datadog trial today by visiting datadog.com slash latenightlinux. Start your free trial, create one dashboard, and you'll get a free Datadog t-shirt. That's datadog.com slash latenightlinux. So the Internet Archive is teaming up with Cloudflare in what's being dubbed a failover deal. So it's it's kind of uh, one of those business deals that involves synergy and stuff, <laughs> I think, where Cloudflare has this um, caching service where if your website is offline, then it will just serve a kind of static cached version of it. And someone over there thought, hang on, the Wayback Machine does pretty much the same thing. Why don't we team up with them and uh, have corporate synergy? I, d- I don't know what to make of this because I've got a lot of respect for um, archive.org the 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 organization seems to do a lot of good but there's just something about cloudflare that rubs me the wrong way i haven't got any evidence and i've talked about it many times i don't know what it is about cloudflare but there's just something i don't like about it and so this makes me a little bit uncomfortable somehow yeah i mean exactly the same boat as you on on the one hand this is really great for the wayback machine and i love perusing what's on there from 20 years ago or something it's it's fascinating and that means that all of the well not all of the website a majority of websites that are using cloudflare will be preserved for posterity but exactly as you say the other the other side of the coin is well, yeah, cloudflare though isn't it mm. it's the same as google creating this amazing email that you could access through a browser and what harm can it do you know it's all moving <laughs> towards it <laughs> But I mean, it's good. It's good as in a way. Also, the lawsuit that's basically been threatening at Internet mm. Archive. It's another way of kind of supporting the initiative, which I agree with. Will is a really great initiative with the Wayback Machine. It's a really important one. But can it tear itself away? Probably not. Not in the way. Not in the way that Cloudflare works. It must be incredibly expensive to run Archive.org. So, I choose to believe that Cloudflare supporting this project is going to be good for the project, and so I'm okay. Yeah, I think on the balance of things, it is a good thing, but it does make me feel slightly uncomfortable. Failing, I assume you have Cloudflare in front of all of your websites that you look after, do you? <laughs> Absolutely, don't you believe it? <laughs> um, yeah, no, I don't. I definitely don't like Cloudflare. I mean, I can see the point in requiring a CDN or load balancer or whatever, but... Yeah, they're in an awful, powerful position and, and in front of an awful lot of websites to the point where the internet has ceased to be uh, fault tolerant because if they go down, then everything else goes down with it. And, it, you know, you're left with about 5% of the internet still working fine. And yeah, again, it's no, not anti-American, but it's an American company with, you know, all the CIA entailed uh, sort of rules, regulations and things like that. So it, it, I don't know. It just, it seems a bit too... One country centric, you know, one provider centric. And yeah, I'm not overly keen on that. 
I remember you singing the praises of Cloudflare, Graham, back in the day when uh, you put it in front of the Linux, was it Linux Voice site? Yeah, that's true. But then we were getting, it was just us running the website and we had a magazine to produce and we were getting loads of DDoS attacks against the server and just <laughs> just using the free Cloudflare service, you know, just putting it behind Cloudflare solved all those problems for us and solved the problems of us having to a sysadmin and all that. Well, yeah, that's why it's attractive to people. It's just a very easy way to look after your website. And I do trust Cloudflare with DNS more than I would trust Google with DNS. Yeah, I don't know about that. I, I don't know who I trust less, Google, Cloudflare, or my ISP. Yeah, that's a tricky one. We talked, uh, oh, I don't know, last summer, I think, about the UK ISP Association voting Mozilla Internet Villain of the Year because yeah. they enabled DNS <laughs> over HTTPS. So I think that tells you how reputable and, and uh, out for their own interests the UK ISPs are. Yeah. I know this is an aside, but um, John Graham Cumming is like the CTO at Cloudflare and he makes a lot of sense. And I just kind of, especially with the Alan Turing thing and the thing, other things he got involved with, um, I don't know. Am I being naive, hoping that people do the right thing? Probably I am. <laughs> well, I don't think that you necessarily have to have nefarious motivations to do bad things. You know, it's that whole Jurassic Park thing. You know, they never stopped to consider if they should do it because they were too busy thinking about whether they could. Oh, I'm paraphrasing badly there, but you know what I mean? Like they have put themselves in this incredibly powerful position with regards to the web and maybe didn't stop to think about what the consequences of that could be. You know, the way um, for companies, there's a certain percentage of a company has to be before it becomes a public rated company. Maybe there's a certain percentage of the internet that a company has to be before it becomes a public sort of body where you know you don't get to be a company who's driven by profit completely only um, yeah, it becomes sort of a utility yeah utility exactly i've solved it there we go <laughs> job done <laughs> on to a bit of admin then and first of all thank you everyone for supporting us on paypal and patreon it is really appreciated if you want to join those people you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support and if you support us for $5 or more on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed, so check that out. And if you want to get in contact, latenightlinux.com slash contact. A quick update on Late Night Linux Extra and the Kyle situation. We didn't do an episode last week because he was too busy and hadn't installed it yet. He was going to install KDE Neon. He ended up going for Kubuntu in the end and said it was a bit buggy. And then he went for Zorin, and I think he's getting on better with that. But he still likes Amaran. <laughs> he just couldn't do the right thing. He had to go with his own idea and do the wrong thing, and then he, so he could moan about it, no doubt. Yeah, I don't know. Even I'm getting a bit sick of his fucking moaning, to be honest. So <laughs> um, we'll see how it goes. Really, if if he's got some good things to say um, after he's lived with it for a while, we'll see. But he's been really busy and I've been really busy as well. So I don't know when the next one of those will be, but, um, stay tuned anyway. We might, might be back or we might not, but yeah, sorry about the, uh, we said that we would, I think we said we'd hopefully be back and then we weren't. So we didn't break any promises, but, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see what happens with that. We did those ask us anything questions, ask us anything sensible. And that got me thinking that maybe we should have more 
from the audience, more feedback. So do get in touch with us if you've got questions or suggestions for stuff we should talk about or whatever, latenightlinux.com slash contact, as I said. And yeah, we're not going to read everything out, obviously, but if there's certain interesting things that people write to us about, then yeah, we might cover it on the show. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Entroware. Go to entroware.com. Entroware sells computers with Ubuntu and Ubuntu Mate pre-installed. They've got a range of desktops, laptops, and servers, and most parts are configurable, so you can pick the CPU, RAM, and storage that's right for you. If you can't find exactly what you want, then do contact them, and they'll work with you on a bespoke solution that's perfect for your needs. They ship to the UK, Republic of Ireland, France, Germany, Italy, and Spain. And if you do buy one of their machines, there's a little drop-down at checkout, and you can select Late Night Linux so they'll know that we sent you. So go to entroware.com for all your Linux computing needs. So Phelim, just before we started recording, you told us you'd been playing with WireGuard, and I said, no, st- stop, stop, save it for the show. So why have you been playing with WireGuard, first of all? So I'm incredibly lazy, and every time I need to access a site, I will generally use either SSH tunnels or SS shuttle or S shuttle or whatever it's called, the, you know, sort of very easy get it done over ssh uh, vpn but i had to set up a vpn for client and i had a look at open vpn and ipsec which i have set up before and i just lost the will to live looking at them because they're goddamn awful and sooner than try to actually read through docs on that again i decided i'd try wireguard and it was too easy. <laughs> so easy, in fact, that I didn't think I was doing it right. And I was convinced there was something missing. And it's, I spent ages looking around for clearly how I was doing this wrong. You say it was too easy. What was involved in setting it up and installing it and everything then? So uh, the site I was putting onto didn't have a firewall that could understand it. So luckily enough there was a linux server in inside the network well it was actually workstation it, the whole concept of server workstation doesn't really matter mm. a device inside the network essentially that you let a port through to and you put a basically about five lines of code for that machine you create two keys with two simple commands and then you can either on that machine or on the other machines generate the public private key pairs which is dead simple it's literally create a file owned uh, 600 mode and then dump the file, uh, the private key into that and then from that generate a public key. So that's like that's literally two commands, dead easy. And uh, each of those machines has about five lines of text and then the sort of server machine has a listing of all of those peers that are going to join into it. So the way I was setting up was like a, a sort of a hub machine with various spoke machines uh, linking into it. And you create a virtual network. So it can be whatever IP range you want. And um, then they can either talk on that network between each other or you can limit them to um, just be allowed to talk to the server itself. But essentially, yeah, that's it. You've done it. And you can either have them ship all their traffic through that link or just that network range traffic. And that's you done. And I set this up for... It was on an Ubuntu machine in the office, opened one port on the firewall, and then a, a various mix of OS ten, Linux, and uh, Windows 10 laptops connected into it. 
and uh, you download the Mac one from the App Store. Uh, you get the Windows one from the WireGuard.com website. And uh, yeah, it's already built into Ubuntu. So you're already sorted if you've anything that's sort of related to that. And there's various other distros that are supported too. And you're done. It's too easy. Is it built into Network Manager? Uh, I believe it is, yeah. And I'm pretty sure it's built into KDE as well. I mean, to be honest, though, like it's a text file with four lines text so i mean you know if you can't manage that i think you probably should stick away from vpns but yes i am sure it is fully supported in the gui as well i just didn't do that the hardest thing i found was shipping the key like so the windows one is a bit of a flaw in the fact that by default the windows client doesn't have the key generation tools there's an extra package you have to build and i just wasn't going near that so i said look i'll just generate it on the Ubuntu server machine and then that's it and I use TeamViewer to essentially dump that config into a text file <laughs> and the hardest part was fucking Windows with its hidden file extensions keep calling my .com file .com .text and just fuck right off Windows honestly yeah that is one of the most annoying things in Windows having to go into folder options and uh, show I, it doesn't look like that every version is so different you just don't know like so you're just left there going oh, I know how to fucking do this but I can't do it <laughs> yeah the biggest problem I've had with OpenVPN in the past, apart from the 2,000 different options, was trying to choose a good encryption mechanism. They all look the same to me. They've oh. all got a load of three-letter acronyms, yeah. and there's about 20 of them. How do you know that you're setting up WireGuard in the right way? Here's the beautiful part. You don't have to care because the person who knows how to do this, the person who wrote it has been really strict and picked just the one for it. Mm. And it's fantastic because I, I'm not a, a crypto analyst of any form or other. So I, I really don't care whether Cha Cha or Diffie Hellman elliptic boomerang works better <laughs> i just want the fucking best one and that's what they've done they've been opinionated and picked the best one and you're sorted and the thing is the server even though it has a port open won't respond back unless you respond to it with the correct initial encryption so mm. you don't have to worry about people battering away in your firewall looking for it because it just won't answer unless you give them the right stuff and it has been independently audited hasn't it it has yeah and it's it's only about four thousand lines of code as well whereas if you're taking ipsec or open vpn they're, they're in the hundreds of thousands of lines of code so you know it, it's just immeasurably better and it's not like the client and server model, is it? It's more of a peer-to-peer -peer thing where it's not as clearly defined which one the server is and which the clients are. Yeah, like you, your connection's always there. So you're not like turning on your VPN like you would traditionally. You access that IP address that you know is your device and then it wake up and start talking and that's it. And it's it's really quick as well. Like it's very, very fast. They have graphs where they show that it, it beats all of the current ones. Um, OpenVPN by some margin and IPsec by a certain amount as well. But the fact that you're not having to actually fire your IPsec tunnel up and wait for that to churn through. And, you know, they say the problem is the fact that there's these multiple layers in most VPN protocols where you've got like, because you have all that choice, that you've got like this matrix of choices of, you know, how we're doing the key sharing, how we're doing all these things. Whereas this is just the one thing, bang, off it goes. Well, I'm convinced. <laughs> I'm convinced. I was going to learn about this. Um, There's nothing to learn. That's the funny thing. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I was going to set this up, but then they uh, didn't uh, 
change the rules about uh, filth, and I didn't need to. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, uh, yeah, other people were asking me about that. I think, unfortunately, the one the one downfall is if you are hiding dodgy stuff like that, it, it apparently deep pack and inspection can kind of half figure out stuff. Maybe or maybe not. There's all sorts of double knotting rules that the likes of NordVPN, who apparently use it, use to try and get past all those sort of things. So be careful what you're using this VPN for. Okay, this episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. Go to do.co slash LNL and get $100 credit with 60 days to use it. DigitalOcean offers VMs or droplets, as they call them, with full root access in data centers all over the world with super fast storage and networking. These droplets start from $5 a month and go all the way up to huge amounts of RAM and CPU power so you can deploy exactly what's right for your project. You can pick from multiple distros and start from a basic installation or pick from dozens of one-click apps and be up and running in seconds. You can add more block or object storage if you need it, and DigitalOcean has managed databases and Kubernetes, great backups and snapshots, and a really useful Teams feature. So go to do.co slash LNL and get started with your $100 credit. That's do.co slash LNL. All right, a quick KDE corner then before we get out of here. Uh, the first one, running Plasma Shell with Vulkan. Yeah, this is really cool. Um, so David Edmondson, he's uh, been experimenting with trying to get QT 5.15 with a, a few modifications, and it has inbuilt the render hardware interface. And essentially, he's been he put a few dev tools on, enabled a few features, and he got a very snappy desktop going. Um, now, he's not anyway saying that it's going to be in Plasma 5 probably at all, um, but Plasma 6 coming could actually be very native in it so yeah pretty cool and you've also put in kde websites update how many times are they going to fucking update their website (laughs) well not all projects hang off the default one some of them are sort of their own separate sort of one and uh, some of these are quite good where the kde seasons of kde is coming up and uh, there's a sort of not quite finished never got finished but maybe it will web page of doing a specialist page for that so that's kind of a bit like a follow-on from the google summer code um it's a kde version and um there's quite a cool one there and they're looking for mentors so you know they want people to join in um and the uh documentation on the kde tech website has been done up so there's a way to write a plasma widget there which is quite cool and i've often been thinking of doing one for uh weather alerts for the metairn in ireland because uh, I just get them to the email because I don't obviously have the Google app because that would be evil and wrong. So uh, I just thought I might do one as a simple experiment. So maybe I'll have to give that a try and see how it goes. And uh, Eliza, the music player has got a new website, as does the subtitle composer, which is if you're helping out uh, projects or videos or definitely not downloaded movies off the internet that you shouldn't have that you're translating into your own language, uh, it's quite a cool application. And uh, an Atelier, the 3D printer application, also has a new one, which you've obviously tried, Graham. I haven't, actually. I should (laughs) definitely try. (laughs) What do you use for your 3D printing, then? So I use OpenSCAD for the design stuff, OpenSCAD, and I use um, Prusa Slicer, which is a fork of uh, Slicer. 
which is an open source project that creates the kind of the, the, the layers that the printer actually prints. It's been a while since we talked about your 3D printer. Is it packed away on a shelf somewhere? <laughs> <laughs> so just this weekend, I um, printed a Raspberry Pi 4 case. You know, over the last uh, the last few months, it, it's it's not being used as much as it was. But it, like I said before, it's really nice knowing it's there. Um, in the last six weeks, I've probably used it for a, a good few things. There is a fatal flaw in printing a Raspberry Pi case, and that is the Raspberry Pi four gets so fucking hot it'll probably melt. <laughs> <laughs> well, I use Pet G, which is pretty good for heat. I mean, you do look into these things a little, um, and also I've got a huge heatsink, and I was able. So this is. OpenSCAD is basically a scripting engine for creating 3D models. And this is somebody else has created um, a, a Raspberry Pi 4 case framework. And all you basically do is change a few variables in the top of the script to generate the case that you want to. Um, and it works really well. Another recent example. So in my homebrew setup, I had a nut that just wouldn't tighten enough because I'm now brewing under pressure. That's a whole new geek conversation. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> um, and I, there's a there's a bolt toolkit in OpenSCAD where you basically say exactly how, you know, the the kind of the pitch of the, the screw that you need or the bolt that you want to attach to, the height of it. And I was able to craft exactly the kind of nut that I needed to tighten this. And, you know, that's that saved me so much time and effort and expense wait you put a plastic nut on top of a bolt yeah well so i use this thing called a foamzilla which is actually pva and plastic and and often the best way of creating a seal is to use more plastic and i'm brewing under like 20 psi and it's stuck for two or three months and it's much better than the metal bolt that came with it which is the the one i had the problem with you know when homer's the beer baron and the beer barrel explodes in the house and there's a fan yeah. of beer about 100 meters tall and the <laughs> chief wiggum's run towards it go we've got a 419 i need pretzels <laughs> it is quite exciting it is exciting it's not in the house <laughs> oh, that's good you better get some cider brewing so I can have some. Yeah, apparently there's a load of apples that haven't been used because of we're not drinking cider as much as we should be. Damn it, Joe. I'll get right on that, don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, we better get out of here then. We'll be back in two weeks. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I've been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later. See you later.